The first time Mike Cope ran the Boston Marathon, he said there were two things that took him by surprise. Number one, the fastest part of the race did not come at the beginning of the race. You know, at the beginning, everybody's fresh and ready to go. At the beginning, everybody's got all this nervous energy and they're eager to get off to a great start. But the fastest part of the race didn't come at the beginning, it came 12 miles down the road. That's when all these middle-aged men run past Wellesley College. It's an all-girls school. On the day of the race, all these young ladies will come out and stand alongside of the road, stand there in their short shorts, and begin yelling and cheering for all the runners. So at the 12-mile marker, as all these middle-aged men come by Wellesley College, all of a sudden they feel inspired. <laughs> they start to, they feel a new surge of energy. They begin to feel an extra zip to their steps. They begin to pick up the pace because none of these middle-aged men want to look bad as they're running past all these young ladies. The second thing that caught Mike by surprise was Heartbreak Hill. It's the toughest part of the race. It's the steepest of all the hills you have to climb in this long, grueling marathon. Heartbreak Hill comes at the 20-mile marker, at that point in the race where your mind is numb and your body is racked with pain. It comes at that point in the race where the last thing you want to have to do is climb another hill. But here's the thing that caught Mike off guard. He said as he began that long climb up Heartbreak Hill, he noticed something at the top of the hill, a cemetery. Mike says, you look up and you see all these tombstones and you're thinking to yourself, if I ever make it to the top of this hill, they're going to bury me in one of those graves. Now it's interesting to see what motivates us. What is it that inspires and what is it that de demoralizes? What is it that excites you and energizes you? And what is it that pops your balloon and just crushes your spirit? Well, that's one of the things that I find fascinating about this book that we're gonna begin to study today, 1 Corinthians. What's motivating the Apostle Paul? You see, there are two things that take me by surprise. Here's the kid, Paul, who grew up hating the church. I mean, no one was a bigger opponent of the church and a bigger opponent of all that the church stood for than Paul. For years, he used every ounce of his energy to attack and persecute Christians. And then all of a sudden, overnight, the church's biggest enemy becomes the church's best friend. Oh, what turned things around for him? And the other thing that surprises me is that of all the churches that Paul planted over the years and all the congregations that he worked with, there was none that gave him more headaches and more heartaches than this church here at the city of Corinth. And yet here in verse 4, the Apostle Paul writes, I always thank my God for you. Meaning, every time I pray, I think about you guys. And when I think about you, I pray for you. And when I pray for you, I pray with a spirit of gratitude. And I'm thinking, how can he say that? with all the stress and the turmoil, with all the conflicts and the controversies that he goes through trying to work with these people, how can he say something like that? What's motivating him? Well, I find my answer in these opening two paragraphs of this book. Verses one to three, Paul gives us his greeting. And then in verses four through nine, he takes five verses just to tell us what he's, what he's thankful for. And it's in these first nine verses that we see a certain name that just keeps popping up again and again and again. Eight times in nine verses, we read the name Jesus. And there's the key. Here's what gives Paul hope in the midst of all the trouble that he has to deal with in this book. Paul realizes that the church is not a man-made organization. No, he writes here in verse 2, the church of Corinth, it is the church of God. Which means in spite of all the flaws and failings you see in the people who make up this church, the church is never going to be defined by its human weakness and sin. No, the church belongs to the Lord, which means the church will always be defined by the grace and mercy of God. 
And when you begin to appreciate just how extraordinary God's grace is, then you realize that no matter what kind of problem you're facing, there's always going to be hope. Even in the worst of situations, because the church belongs to God, you know that he can still make all things work together for good. In other words, Paul loves this church because Jesus loves this church. Think of it this way. Here's a man who can't tell the difference between a French horn and a piano. And he falls in love with this young lady who's just crazy about classical music. So what happens? Well, because of his affection for her, he, begins, he becomes curious, insanely curious. Why does she like classical music? I, I don't get this. Maybe I need to learn something about this. So he buys tickets to the symphony. You see, because of his love for her, something that he'd always ignored before, now he begins to explore and check things out because that's how love operates. When the person I love becomes interested in something that I know nothing about, because of my love for that person, I now begin to cultivate an interest in the same thing too. Well, so it is with the Apostle Paul. He's fallen in love with Jesus, which means he now cares about the same things that Jesus cares about. Jesus cares about this church here in the city of Corinth. Paul cares about this church too. And Paul is convinced that if he can just get the people in this congregation to once again just really fall in love with Jesus, then all the problems that they're having are going to begin to sort themselves out. So we're back to this question of motivation. And there's no one who better understands how important motivation is than God himself. Think about the book of Genesis. How did Adam know that he was supposed to become one flesh with Eve? Did God have to hand him a list? Did God kind of have to spell things out, give him this to-do list and say, okay, Adam, let's make sure you get all this right. Number one, name the animals. Number two, take out the trash. Number three, become one flesh with Eve. No, God didn't have to say anything at all. All he had to do was just turn Adam around and say, look at her. And as Adam began to look at Eve, suddenly he felt this desire rising up in his heart, a strong desire to want to be with her. Well, where did that desire come from? It came from God. God knows that relationships don't work if the desire's not there. If you don't like God, you're not gonna wanna spend much time with him. If you have no desire to know the Lord, then the two of you are never gonna be close. You see, it's wanting to do what you ought to do that's the key to turning things around. Now, I know there's always going to be those things in life where you have to do it because it's your duty. It's what you're obligated to do. You ought to pay your taxes. You ought to clean the house. You ought to change the baby's diaper. None of those things are much fun to do, but we do them because they have to be done. And there are always going to be those kind of issues in life. But if that's the only way you see your life as the things you're obligated to do, then you're gonna miss out on so much that God has in store for you. In other words, there's a different way of thinking of this word ought. Instead of just thinking of it in terms of obligation, what if we began to think of it in terms of opportunity? You ought to take a break. You ought to get out and see the world. You ought to taste this cake. Now all of a sudden we're using that word ought in a completely different way. Now we're talking about wanting to do what you ought to do. And that's exactly the kind of motivation that the Apostle Paul is trying to stir up here when in verses 4 through 9, he takes five verses just to say, let me tell you what I'm grateful for. Verse 4, consider all that God has done for us in our past. And when you realize all that God has already done for us, you, you begin to appreciate how much we have to be grateful for. 
And then verses five and six, look at all that God's doing for us right now. And again, you begin to realize we have much to be thankful for. And then verses seven, eight, nine, look at what God's promised to do for us in our future. And as you begin to appreciate all the Lord is doing, you begin to understand that living the Christian life is not an obligation. No, living the Christian life is an opportunity, an opportunity every day to experience something special with Jesus. Here's an example. Let's just look at verse four today. The Apostle Paul writes, I always thank my God for you because, and notice the reason. It's not because of the Corinthians and what they've done for them. No, the reason he's thankful is because of God and what he's done for them. It says, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. Now here's the problem, it's this word grace. We use that word a lot. It's been around for a long time. And because we use the word so frequently, sometimes it doesn't feel so amazing anymore. But the Bible's telling us here in this verse that the key to allowing grace to really become amazing again to us, the key to appreciating just how extraordinary God's love is for us, is to go back to your own experience. How did you first experience the grace of God? What made your life with Jesus possible? Think of it like this. Here's a young couple, Neil and Sally, in their early 20s, and they've been dating for a few months. But when Sally introduces, first introduces Neil to her parents, things don't go well. They're not thrilled. Neil has this reputation for kind of living on the wild side. And even Sally herself has felt uneasy at times about some of the things that Neil tends to do. For example, one night, Neil takes Sally to a party and things get a little out of hand. He begins to drink and he continues to drink throughout the night. And by the time they leave the party in the wee hours of the morning, he's had way too much. He's in no position to drive the car. And yet he insists on getting behind the wheel. Well, that's when the unthinkable happens. On the way home, Neil loses control of the car, veers off to the side, runs into a rock. The car flips and rolls several times down the hill. A Couple hours later, here's Neil. He wakes up in the hospital, his head pounding, his body aches. Fortunately, no broken bones, no major injuries. He's come out of this pretty well. But as he's trying to piece things together in his mind, hey, what happened last night and how did I wind up here? The doctor walks into the room. Neil asks, how's Sally? And the doctor just shakes his head and says, it's bad. It's really bad. She's paralyzed. She probably won't ever walk again. And Neil asks, well, can I see her? And the doctor says, no, Sally doesn't want to see you. She'll probably never talk to you again. All of a sudden, Neil find himself, finds himself in the midst of a real nightmare. In fact, a couple weeks later, Sally's attorney sends him a letter and the letter reads, in light of her permanent disability, we're gonna take legal action against you. And Neil understands. He knows that he's been foolish. He knows he's done something terribly wrong and it's changed everything in his relationship with Sally. And so now Neil begins to wonder, can I ever make things right with her again? Well, that depends upon Sally, not Neil. She's the one that got hurt. She's the one that suffered because of, her, uh, of his sin. So if this relationship's ever to be recovered, if this relationship is ever to re be restored, it will depend upon Sally, not Neil. It will all depend upon Sally and what she decides to do. Well, that's our dilemma with the Lord. We live in a world that is created by God. It belongs to him, not us. And we each inhabit a body that was created by the Lord. So this is his, not mine. So whenever we do something foolish, whenever we do something wrong, whenever we tear things up, he's the one that gets hurt. 
He's the one that's been sinned against. And he has every legal right to take action against us, to make us pay for the damages. So if there's to be any hope of turning things around, if there's to be any hope of getting out of this mess that we've made, if there's ever to be any hope of getting back on the right track with the Lord, it depends upon him, not us. It all depends upon God and what he decides to do. Well, there's the good news. This is why all the way through the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul keeps using this word gospel, which means good news. And this is why all the way through the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul keeps saying, look at the cross. Look at what God has decided to do. God decided instead of taking action against us, he was going to take action for us. God decided to pay for the damages himself. So Jesus, Jesus dies on the cross to pay for all of our sins. You see, in spite, in spite of all our sin, God loves us. God's not mad at us. Grace means God, God is not mean or cruel or uncaring. No, grace means God is kind-hearted and friendly and generous. Grace means God wants to give. He wants to share. He wants things to be good for us. And Paul's point is here in verse four, coming to believe in that grace again, coming to believe in what he has decided to do for us and believing in why he decided to do for us. You see, Jesus did this. He died on the cross because he wanted to. He genuinely desires a new life for us. And when you believe in what he decided to do and why he decided to do that, it turns everything around in your Christian life. Now you begin to realize that living for Jesus is not an obligation. This is not something you have to do. No, living for Jesus is an opportunity, an opportunity every day to experience something wonderful and glorious, an opportunity every day to experience and enjoy the amazing grace of God. His name was Jimmy, Jimmy Wayne. Never knew his father and his mother never really loved him. She spent more time in prison than out. In fact, from the age of 12 to the age of 13, because his mom had taken up with this troublemaker, Jimmy pretty much spent that whole year just living in the backseat of an Oldsmobile because his mom and her no good boyfriend were always on the run, always doing their best to avoid the police. And then one day her mom, his mom did the unthinkable. She just dumped him in a parking lot of a bus station there in Pensacola, Florida, took off and Jimmy never saw her again. So here he is 13 years of age and he's been abandoned. 13 years of age and he has no home, no future, no provisions. What's Jimmy supposed to do? Well, the next day, Jimmy is walking in, in one of the local neighborhoods there in Pensacola and he sees this elderly, elderly gentleman working in his garage. And so he works up the courage to approach him. He says, hey, you wouldn't have any work for me to do, would you? And this elderly man can immediately tell this boy's in trouble. He's probably homeless. And so he decides to take a chance. He decides to show him a little grace. He reaches out his hand. He says, hey, my name's Russell. What's your name? Jimmy. Oh, good. Good to meet you, Jimmy. I'm Russell. This is my wife, B. Yeah, we could use a little help. It'd be nice if we had somebody to mow our yard. Could you do that for us? Jimmy nodded his head. And Russell said, well, why don't you just use my lawnmower? Let me show you how it operates. And so over the next couple of weeks, J Jimmy would show up once a week to cut the grass and Russell and B would pay him $20 and then they'd bring him into their house and fix him a really nice meal. And then they'd send him on his way with a little bit of extra food and, and some kind of special gift in his hand. This went on for a couple of weeks until one day Russell and B began to probe a little bit. Hey, Jimmy, where are you staying? Where do you live? And Jimmy immediately lied because he's scared. 
He thought, man, if they know the truth about me, they're not going to want to have anything to do. They, they don't want a homeless boy working for them. So he just made up a story. And Russell and B could tell. But they just kept loving Jimmy. Every week he'd come and they'd pay him. They'd fix him another meal. They'd send him on his way with another gift until one day the truth came out. And Russell and B convinced him, why don't you just stay with us? Now all of a sudden, here's Jimmy. He's got his own bedroom, his own bathroom, a place at the dinner table. I mean, being in this home was like heaven for Jimmy. I mean, now every day he could have a hot bath, every day a nice meal, and the best part of all, every day at the end of the day, he could sit in the living room with Russell and B and watch some TV and just enjoy a delightful conversation with him. It was glorious. But in spite of all the kindness and generosity, there was one thing Jimmy couldn't do. He couldn't unpack his bag. I mean, he'd been turned away so many times in the past, he found it difficult to trust others. So even though he was in this new home for a week, he still kept all of his clothes and all of his worldly belongings, which wasn't much, but he kept it all wrapped up in this big plastic bag just in case Russell and B might change their mind. You see, he was in the house. He just didn't feel at home in the house. But Russell and B just kept loving him and just kept caring for him. And finally, after dozens and dozens of glorious meals and after many, many heartfelt conversations, Jimmy started to believe, to really believe they're not going to change their mind. They're not going to turn me away. They really want me to stay. And finally, a week and a half later, he began to unpack the bag and he began to settle in to his new home. Now that's our dilemma with the Lord. Yeah, God's been good to us, but how do I know that one day he won't change his mind? I mean, that's what so many other people have done to us in our past. Boyfriends and girlfriends that we were convinced really liked us, and then one day they changed their mind and walked away. An employer that we worked with for years, and we thought we had this really good bond with them, and we always did such a fine job, and then one day, years later, out of the blue, we're laid off. Coaches who kick players off the team, teachers who expel students from the classroom, parents who dump kids at the, at the bus station. How do we know that one day God's not going to do the same thing to us? I mean, think about it. He's holy. He's pure. And we're anything but that. We stumble. We fall. We sin again and again. Is it ever going to be safe for us to just unpack our bags and act like we really belong in the family of God? And all the way through the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul keeps shouting, yes, yes, yes. And if you ever have any doubts about this, just look at the cross. Because that's where God proved his commitment to us. That's where God shows us that nothing can ever separate us from his love for us. So, verse 4, Paul says, just keep coming back again and again and again to the grace that has been given us in Jesus Christ. Look at what he decided to do for us and consider why he decided to do it. And know that you always have a home with him. And when you know that, then instead of seeing your Christian life as an obligation, now you realize living for Jesus is an opportunity. Here's something you want to do because every day you have another opportunity to experience something wonderful and glorious. Every day you have another opportunity to experience and enjoy the amazing grace of God. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful that you do not treat us as our sins deserve. God, we're so grateful that though we have sinned again and again, yet you never turn away, you never abandon us, you never give up on us. Thank you, God, for saving us. And thank you for that amazing love that motivated you to
to provide that salvation for us. God, would you help each one of us to believe again, to have confidence in your awesome love for us. And God, may it be that love that captures our hearts today. And we pray for this in Jesus' name, amen.